0: show me the money this is the money web be a better investor podcast picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies successes and mistakes your host rake fanica Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Rijk van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to professional investors about their investment journeys and why they chose a career in managing other people's money. We also discuss how they manage their own money, which is sometimes different to their professional styles. And the idea is to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors my guest today is derek msibi he's the ceo of stanlip which is one of the country's leading asset managers he has been in this role for six years but he has been in the investment business for nearly three decades derek thank you so much for your time today first of all give us a bit of background where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to the investment world
1: yeah, thank you, Rick. I actually grew up in Swaziland, which is now called Eswatin. I spent my formative years there, went to school, and then I came to study at UCT. What happened was, when I finished school, I wanted to be a medical doctor, and then I changed my mind. And uh, as a result of changing my mind, I had to spend a year at home. And while I was waiting to go to university, I came across the field of accounting And then I registered to study business science at UCT, specializing in finance and accounting. And that's really when I got interested in investments. I was part of the investors club during my days there and fell in love with the world of finance. And so when I finished there, I then went and I did my articles and then I joined Old Mutual. But by the time I joined Old Mutual, I was already quite a person who was very much informed about investments in general. And I was starting to use my money to invest mainly in unit trusts during those days. So I think my investment journey started a lot earlier. I think because I was already an active finance graduate, maybe it had a a degree of sophistication that other people might not have because we were studying a lot of these things and we're doing assignments on them. And so I think my knowledge and my interest in markets was already quite developed by the time I graduated which was in 1992.
0: You refer to an investment club. Tell us about that club, how it worked, and how successful it was. You know, there were two investment clubs that I belonged to. There was one at campus.
1: The one on campus, really, we didn't invest money. It was just a group of students who got together to talk about market ideas, what shares to buy and what to sell, and just a general knowledge about how the stock market worked. And then there was another investment club that I belonged to where we were all pitching in some money and uh, would decide what share we we're going to buy, what we we're going to sell, depending on whoever had the best idea. So those investment clubs were very much about, one, developing an interest in the world of investing, exposing people to different types of investments. In fact, we used to invest in derivatives, uh, not only just uh, shares, but also options, etc., and even bonds. And by the time These retail bonds, government retail bonds came in. I was still part of an investment club and we considered those as an investment option. And the other one was what people were reading. So there was a lot of discussion about books, about Peter Lynch, about Warren Buffett, about what was in the newspapers, et cetera. So it it had a multifaceted requirement or opportunity for people not just to learn about investments, but also to get to see what do investors read. And when they read, what do they take out of the different books that they are reading or the articles that they are reading?
0: But that's an absolutely ideal way to enter the investment world, to discuss opportunities and different possible investments with peers and, and maybe more knowledgeable people. But I don't get the sense that many young people do that who want to invest. They open an account, stockbroking account, And they put in a few thousand rand and they are very excited. And now the big problem is what do you invest in? How do you think should young people try and come together, talk about investment? What information should they access to identify good opportunities? Because obviously the idea is to be successful. You want to make money from this whole process. But it's not that easy, especially if you're young.
1: Yeah, I think the first one is where to good investment ideas, where do you find them? It means that you've got to read and you've got to have a network. You know, Jim Cramer at CNBC is not really the best person to be giving you investment ideas in South Africa. But, you know, there are items like BDTV, etc., where you've got investment professionals who are talking about what's happening in markets. And so getting plugged into that is not a bad start. And most people who are investing have got access to that. You know, there's the financial mail, that you can read. There's your program in MoneyWeb that people can read, where you have different commentary about what's happening in the markets, etc. So, I think in South Africa, if you want and you are curious enough, there's enough information out there. I think the key thing is that you have to be curious, and uh, you need to take it upon yourself and be intentional and say, here are the four or five areas which I can get updates around what's happening in the markets over than what I see on TV. And you make it a habit to plug into those on a regular basis to see and to get ideas about what is happening. I think, actually, if I think of today, I look at my children and I look at ourselves, there's so much information that's available. You know, for us, we just relied on the newspapers. Maybe we read Fortune magazine. We read the Business Day. We read the Financial Mail and Finweek. That's all we had. I think right now, the world of information, I think they've got a different challenge to what we had. My view is that I think a lot of, of what you face with today is just too much information. And therefore, the skill has moved from trying to find the information to actually trying to sift what is the most useful information that you have. And that's why a lot of these sites and magazines have got way of uh, trying to help people to say, well, you know what, this particular thing was recommended by someone who is very similar to you. And therefore, that's how people end up making some of the choices that they make. So it's helpful in some way, in terms of helping people to sift through. But I think right now, the challenge is just way too much information, as opposed to what we had, which was, you know, really finding information was a lot harder, and for that matter, expensive.
0: Now, absolutely. I think access to information is not a big problem anymore. There is too much information available. But let's talk about you. Can you remember what the very, very first investment is you have made? And what was it? An, an investment you've made with your own money. That is very important. Look, I think
1: from the day I started working, so which is when I, I finished university, and then I went to work at KPMG. The very first thing I, I did was, I mean, I always put money in a bank account, saving for the rainy day, which was always making sure that there's, a, you know, in case I've got some difficulty or my pocket money doesn't, my personal money doesn't come through on time, you know, I don't go hungry. So I always had a, a bit of money kept aside for that. But proper investing, really, I started by um, when I started doing articles. And interestingly enough, I went to do the audit of what was called Investec Asset Management at the time. And while I was there, I got interested in investing in one of their unit trusts. And it was the Investec More Cap Fund. And that was really the very first uh, formal, proper investment that I made that had uh, excluding stuff that was in the investment clubs that I belonged to, but where I really was putting my own money into that
0: unit trust. That's interesting. Many young people... They are a lot more risk averse. They really would like to invest a thousand rand and quite quickly or they would like to see that money grow quite quickly. And Unitrust, you know, obviously they are invested mostly in equities. The question I have for many of the young people is whether they understand risk from an early age. The older you get, the more risk averse you become. But when you are young, risk is something for the future. How do you think young people should look at risk and approach it or integrate it within the investment strategy? Look, I think if you're younger and
1: you really have got a long-term perspective, risk actually works in your favor. So, you know, when I started investing, I didn't have really many obligations. So I could, you know, if cryptocurrency was available then, I would have put my money in cryptocurrency because, you know, I had 30, 40 years ahead of me. And therefore, you know, my appetite for risk at that point in time was actually big as opposed to where I am now. You know, I'm 54. I've got responsibility to my family. So I need to be a bit more tempered in terms of my risk appetite. So I think at the early ages, I tell all my four children to say, look, guys, you know what? If you've got a 10-year view, go and find the entities or the investments that are offering you growth. Take a bit more risk because it will come a time where you will not be able to take risk with your money. But understand that you are taking a five or a 10 year view. Don't sort of take risk with money that you're going to need next month to go and pay for your school fees. That's not as wise idea. But if you're saying, you know what, when I graduate, or when I want to have enough money to be able to put down a deposit on a car or a second hand car or maybe a small apartment. I think you should uh, certainly with anything that's got longer than a five year horizon, you should be willing to take a bit more risk So they're very fortunate in that they've got that capacity to take more risk. You know, at some stage, that's no longer there. Even if you need to take more risk because you have not saved enough, it's just not prudent when you're 55 to have all your money in equities. (laughs) You know, when you are 20, you can have all your money in equities, particularly because you've got another 40, 50 years to live or before you actually need that money.
0: Let's talk about the way your investment approach changed over the years as you've said you are in your mid 50s i think you still have around 40 years (laughs) investment horizon uh, but let's leave it there how did it change and i'm not talking about your investments or your uh, pension fund contributions because those investments are highly regulated and obviously the tax benefits also come into play there but i'm talking about your discretionary money Your after-tax money, you invest in your portfolio. How did your approach change from, um, say, from your mid-20s now to the mid-50s? Until about when I turned
1: 50, I had a bulk of my money in a combination of balance funds and equities. So it was really at the top end of the risk spectrum. Why did I do that? One was, I think, at quite an early age, I was able to get out of debt. And because I worked for companies that looked after me your typical cover for disability or whatever was taken care of in terms of being belonging to a group scheme. And so I felt that I could take a lot more risk and was really looking for growing my net worth quite aggressively, but in a more controlled way. And so you found that a large portion of my money was managed in balance funds, high equity balance funds, uh, for a long period of time from there time I was in my mid-20s to when I uh, I turned 50. And then when I turned 50, our financial advisor sort of sat down and said, look, you you need to consider how you take some risk off the table. And we sort of moved to having sort of medium equity-type portfolios in our range, and we also dialed up the amount of money that was sitting offshore. So we increased quite a bit of of our offshore allocation over Over the years. So I would say I've had lots of money in really riskier asset classes and then obviously taking money offshore as and when I've had opportunity to take money offshore. I've been quite aggressive of late in taking my money offshore.
0: Let's talk about your best and worst investments ever. It always elicits a bit of a giggle. Let's start with your best one ever. What would you regard as the single best investment you have ever made? Yeah, look, I'm sure people can be
1: philosophical. Obviously, the best investment I ever made was investing in my education, which has got me to where I am. But the next best investment I ever made was buying Capitec shares, sort of in the early days when you were trading for 5, 10 rand and it was still seen as a micro lender. That's been the single best investment I've ever made. Do you still
0: hold the shares?
1: I still hold the shares, yeah.
0: That's been a phenomenal success story.
1: Yeah. And over
0: the years, that has just become
1: a an important part of my portfolio. And I, I wasn't smart in anywhere I was, Someone just said, you know what, there's this thing called Capitec, Keynes Rationale or whatever. It's a micro lender. It seems to be doing well. It seems to be cheaper compared to all of the other banks. Just put some money in there and I had a bit of spare cash for my bonus. And I, and I put it in there and over the years I've added and then it's just grown and grown to where it is today. So I think that was my best investment. My worst investment was when I was working at Old Mutual. That was in the mid-90s. And there was a big shift to companies issuing these BE share schemes. Jarnik, MTN, all of them did that. And there was one which was particularly for African Bank, where they did one of these BE schemes. And most of the BE schemes, you always got bailed out. Because if they didn't work out, you got your cash back. But you actually never lost money, except Able, because that went bust and you took all of our money with us. And i would gotten into this idea, which is what, for all of these B.E. schemes, you always just put as much money as you can afford. Because, you know, politically, it was very difficult for someone to go and say, you tried to do a B.E. scheme and it didn't work out. And now you're going to go and claw back money. From the poor black South Africans who were expected to participate in the new world of capitalism. So I always thought I had a put until it happened there and I lost all my money, every single cent in the, the ABLE BE scheme. I never got my money back, I lost it completely. So that was my worst investment. Fortunately, it was part of a diversified pool of these BE schemes that I had invested in. Others had done really well, which was the only one where I thought I would never be wiped out, but I got that one wrong, horribly wrong.
0: But even the best investors in the world, Warren Buffett, for example, get things wrong. They sometimes invest in companies that do not perform. I think the challenge is to invest in more successful companies than poor-performing companies. And during you know this podcast, over the years, I've learned that Professional investors are relatively happy with a hit rate of six winners and four losers. And they just hope that the winners perform significantly better than the losers. So how do you approach poor investments? Because it happens, but you need to have a strategy to identify it early rather than just to wait forever for a recovery that never comes.
1: Yeah, look, I think from my starting point is that I always assess whether I feel that there's enough of a safety net. Or safety factor in any investment I make, but I always have a sense around you know if I get it wrong, how wrong can it ever be? Would it, is it ever going to wipe me out? So that's the first thing. The second thing is yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of us underestimate that in order to be a successful investor you, you don't need to get 90 percent of your calls right. You need to get 60, but that 60 has to be big and good enough to make up for the other 40. The second one is I try to avoid fads. So if, for instance, you hear at some stage people talking about, I mean, there's been some, a lot of fads of late, particularly around the new age economy, whether it's been uh, IT, etc. I try to have a much more of a, a lower weighting to that. I prefer to be invested in just traditional things that people need on a day-to-day basis. You know, we all need to eat food. You know, there's a lot of good food companies that pay decent dividend. We need some resources and therefore you need to have some exposure to commodities, although they can be cyclical, they can't be part of your portfolio. But you know, the world needs energy, it needs gold for whatever reason, and it needs platinum and, and other other resources. So you always need to have some exposure to that. And so I tend to be more favourable towards old economy type things, which I know that they're not going to disappear. That whether you like it or not, people need to eat, people need to be driven somewhere. So, you know, you need some exposure to logistics because things need to move from one part of the country to another. So my typical exposure, you'll find that it's got a lot more exposure to those types rather than the go-go stocks that everybody talks about. It also means that I've missed out. You know, I've missed out on things like NASPERs, I've missed out on some of the FANGs that uh, people talk about. But, you know, I'm happy with that because overall, you know, I believe that my portfolio has been a lot more steadier in terms of the return profile that it has. And it just grown comfortably. You know, I don't have to go through the drama of, oh, my goodness, this thing is down 20% this year and maybe next year it comes back, it's up 40%. It's just been steadily growing up and enabling me to amass a a decent amount of wealth.
0: Now, FANGS, they are the big international IT companies or social media companies, Facebook or Meta, Alphabet and Google, Netflix, Amazon. I think they are all in there. But just lastly, if you could speak to yourself when you were 23 years old, what would your advice to yourself be?
1: But I think the first one I would say is investment is very much about delayed gratification. But you've got to accept that there's a lot that you need to give up for now, but that when you enjoy it in the future, it's just going to be so rewarding. So you've got to be willing to delay your gratification. That's the first thing. The second thing about investing is you've got to learn that in order to live within your means, you can't spend more than what you're earning. So you got to start by saying, you know, if I end, and I've got a rule, which is fifteen percent of my pre-tax money goes towards savings. Fifteen percent. That excludes pension funds and anything like that. You could decide what is your percentage, and I always advise my kids that ten percent of whatever you get in your allowance, you should just go and save that, and then the rest you can try and live and live on. And the principle is never spend more. Than what you are earning that's the second issue. The third issue is you could avoid what I call lifestyle inflation. If you think of most people when they are they are young, they you know live in a particular house, they drive a particular house a particular car, they wear particular clothes, they eat a particular type of food. Unfortunately, what happens is that as they earn more money a lot of those other things start going through their own version of inflation. All of a sudden, pick and pay is no longer good enough for their food. They've got to buy their food at whatever, the deli, which charges 20, 30% more. The car that they used to drive is no longer a Toyota. Mercedes is now what is required. When they used to wash their own clothes, now they need two mates in order to do the same piece of work. And so what happens is that they're earning more, but their lifestyle is eating up even more of what they are earning. So lifestyle inflation is something that you need to watch out for and really try and keep under control. I'm not saying that as you earn more money, you should continue to live like someone who doesn't, but just watch out that your lifestyle costs don't start inflating at a rate that outstrips what you're earning. And always keep, which is my final point, always keep the proportion of savings, they say. So whether you're earning 1,500 rand or you're earning 3,000 rand or you're earning 30,000 rand or 3 million rand, just keep that percentage of what you are saving fixed and make that the first thing that you actually take care of. You know, for us black people who have got black tax, we've also got to factor that into the equation, which is, you know, you've got to save money for yourself and then you've got to also take also uh, remember that you've got responsibilities to your family or your parents And then you've got other responsibilities to your own family, your immediate family, your wife and kids, to the extent that you're a single income family. So, all of those things you've got to take into account. And my view is that that's what has helped me. And uh, the final thing I always say to people is there is a lot of basic financial discipline that you need to learn about money, which is money is like a mistress. Not that I have a mistress, but it's like a mistress because one, it is jealous. It requires your attention. Because if you don't look after your money, it will separate from you. Okay, If you don't look after your money, it will separate from you. And so you really need to be cautious that money, you have it for a reason and for a season. And if you're a bad steward of it, you will lose it eventually. But if you're a good steward of it, it multiplies itself. And I've always aimed to be a very good steward of it because by doing that, it just demonstrated to me that being a good steward of money makes you afford and enjoy life better than being a bad steward.
0: Money is a mistress. Derek, thank you so much. I think you have shared excellent insights with us. Thank you for the invitation. That was Derek Nsibi, he's the CEO of StanLib. Show me the money. <laughs> That was the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast with Rake for NICAP. Thanks for listening Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights